about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is David Honey. I'm one of the parish councillors, and I will be your preacher for this morning. The loss of infertility is a heavy burden to bear. Grief would be another way to describe it, and it is much a part of my daily life as children would be if we had them. It comes with me everywhere and affects me to varying degrees on any given day. It's often unpredictable. The sinking feeling when, I, when, when someone is about to tell us they're expecting a baby the shock of an unexpected pregnancy announcement, the deep, unfulfilled longing when I see a pregnant belly, the lump in my throat when I see an ultrasound photo, the guilt of feeling so bad about the joys of others, the tears that well up when I see little girls playing with younger siblings or dolls, the emptiness I feel as we helplessly watch other people's children grow up around us. The disappointment of a late month, the anger at having allowed myself to hope, the sadness in Adrian's eyes as he deals with his own grief while also shouldering my pain, the fact that our situation doesn't change. This is how a friend and former student of mine shared her experience of infertility uh, on a blog post. It's not something that I know of personally, but it is an ever-present shadow on our community at Moore College, with the vast majority of student families being in the childbearing years. It's also the entry point to our discussion of prayer today as we continue our summer series on praying. This month we are focusing on some of the significant prayers of the Bible to start the year off reflecting on our attitudes and practices when it comes to prayer. Last week we joined Moses on the mountain, surrounded by the glory of God. But this week uh, it's a scene that's far more mundane uh, and certainly more common. Now you can learn a lot about the God that people believe in when you listen to the way that they pray. And this morning we'll learn at least three things about the God to whom Hannah prays. Hannah prays to a God who notices the small things, Hannah prays to a God who values the small things. And Hannah prays to a God who works in the small things. Well, before uh, we listen more closely to Hannah's prayer, let me lead us in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you that even though we here as a small number are gathered, you are with us, watching over us, listening to us, and longing for us to come to you in prayer. Lord, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts today to see you better as the God of small things. Amen. Well, I mentioned that the first thing we can see about Hannah's prayer is that she prays to a God who notices the small things. So please turn back uh, to the 1 Samuel reading, 
in your Bible. I'm going to just uh, slowly make our way through that story because it's an important example of the people of God in relation to the God of the Bible. So our story picks up with Hannah crying in the chapel, as it were. Here we have Hannah and her family gathered for the annual feasts at the house of the Lord. The Israelite families were required to come once a year to offer sacrifices to God of thanksgiving and fellowship. And while it should be a scene of feasting and joy, the opposite is true for Hannah, because Hannah is childless. Now, apart from the ordinary anguish of failed hopes and self-doubt, or even the taunts of her husband's other wife, which seems like a horror story all by itself, apart from all these things, we need to keep in mind that fertility and the experience of fertility is directly tied to the promises of God for Israel. Ever since the time of Abraham, being fruitful and multiplying has been an important part of Israelite self-identity. God makes us multiply. And to receive God's promise, to be a promise bearer, is to be fruitful. In Genesis 12, 15 and 17, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be numerous. And that promise is provisionally fulfilled when the Hebrews take possession of the promised land. So Hannah's anguish is potentially spiritual as well as physical. Perhaps she's wondered whether or not she actually has a place in God's promises. It's one thing not to be able to do what everybody else is doing, but it would be something entirely worse to be excluded from the promises of God. So Hannah does what anyone who is doubtful about their place before God should and must do. She pours out her heart to him. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, it may seem like Hannah is trying to strike up a bargain here with the Lord, that, that special style of negotiating that we take on with God. You give me something uh, that I want and I'll give you something that I don't need. That's usually how it works when we, uh, in desperation, call out to God. But not so in Hannah's case. The child will be devoted to the Lord. So basically what Hannah is saying is that, Lord... Everything comes from your grace and I will offer up everything you give me to your service. It's very different from the ordinary run-of-the-mill negotiating that we carry on with God, isn't it? Everything that I have comes from you, O Lord, and whatever you give to me, please let me offer it up to your service. Now, as the rest of the story unfolds, it's this attitude of Hannah's that has the greatest effect on God. The way to ask something of the Lord is by first acknowledging that everything comes from him and then to see that for which we ask as another opportunity to devote ourselves to God's service. 
So really our prayers should be shaped by, Lord, please give me X, Y or Z so that I may serve you with it. Now I suspect if we're truthful with ourselves, it's a very different way of asking the Lord for something. Now let's do a little experiment now. Beginning of the year, I'm sure you've got things on your mind that you're praying for. Just quietly to yourself, why don't you try out one or two of those things in this form? Lord, I know that everything comes from you. Please give me X so that I may serve you with it better. Just do that quietly now to yourself. Try it out. See what it's like. It's quite a different way of praying, isn't it? But that's how Hannah has brought her prayers before the God who notices the small things. Now, after a brief and somewhat awkward conversation with the high priest, uh, Eli has seen Hannah praying and thinks she's drunk. He's hardly beyond reproach himself, but that's a different part of the story. Anyway, it turns out she was praying, so she goes off with Eli's blessing and she's satisfied that she's been heard. Now, the Lord noticed Hannah in her plight and responds in kindness. And this does not mean that he'd somehow forgotten her uh, previously uh, and that she had to put on a big show to try and get his attention. No, it's, it's, even though it may have felt like that to Hannah at times, it's actually a turn of phrase used in the Old Testament to indicate that the Lord has paid attention to Hannah's prayer and her plight has not escaped him. So move a little bit forward now to chapter 1, verse 19 of uh, 1 Samuel, and you'll see what we mean. Chapter 1, verse 19, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back home to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So Hannah prays to the God who notices small things. They obviously didn't seem small to Hannah, but nevertheless, on the world stage, it's a scene of petty domestic rivalries with all the smallness and meanness of intrafamilial jealousy. It's the kind of shameful behaviour we prefer that others don't see. Yet God notices the plight of the victims and listens when they bring their griefs before him in humble service. So, the God to whom Hannah prays notices small things. But even better than that, the God to whom Hannah prays values the small things. Sometime later, the Lord has granted Hannah the desire of her heart and she responds in accordance to her vow. The young boy Samuel is taken to the house of the Lord in Shiloh to serve there. Now, the mention of never cutting Samuel's hair possibly means that Hannah has taken out what's referred to as a Nazarite vow for her son. You can read about them uh, in Numbers chapter 6. But it's basically a vow that an Israelite takes on when they want to set themselves aside from ordinary life for a period of time for special service to the Lord. In Samuel's case, it's going to be his whole life. 
But nevertheless, this idea of being set aside is marked out by not having a haircut. Now, in those days, men wore turbans, so not unlike uh, uh, Indian Sikhs, Samuel would have wrapped his hair up uh, in a turban, some marvellous bouffant sort of thing, no doubt. And that was to be an outward public sign that he'd been set apart for the service of the Lord. Samuel is to be set aside, and that is the response uh, of Hannah to the Lord's prayer. Sorry, to the Lord's uh, answering of her prayer. Now, the fact that that's a good thing for Hannah comes out in what we read in the next part of chapter 2. Look a a little bit ahead now and we see the song or the, the second prayer that Hannah prays. And it's a reflection on the promise that God not only notices the small things, he values them. Whereas the world might despise the humble or the feeble, the Lord notices them and exalts them because he values the poor who trust in him far more than the rich who ignore him. The Lord values the poor who trust in him far more than he values the rich who ignore him. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And all throughout Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, there's a raising up and a bringing down. The hungry are fed and those who have plenty are turned away. The one who is barren has many sons, whereas the one with children goes without. Raising up of the humble, bringing down uh, of the arrogant. This is the testimony uh, of Hannah's prayer, because God grants the desires of those who seek to serve him with everything. Now this brings us to two important and possibly uncomfortable questions, I think. Here is Hannah's prayer. The Lord raises up the humble and he brings down the arrogant. The Lord vindicates those who trust and he is against those who ignore him. Here's my first question. Can you believe in that God? Can you believe that God raises up the poor and brings down the rich? That he's on the side of the frail and against the powerful? Can you believe that? Can you believe that God notices and values the small things in your life? Your small things? I'm sure they seem large to you, but the truth of the matter is you're one of seven billion people. They probably are fairly small on the greater scheme of things. But can you believe that God notices and values them? Or has disappointment and loss left you unwilling to be vulnerable before God? Can you, in the bitterness of your soul, expose your sadness and grief to God? Or have you long since stopped believing that he has the small things in mind? If not, what is it that's stopping you from believing that God notices and values the small things in life? Perhaps you don't pray because you're not a God-botherer, someone who pesters God for every little thing instead of getting on with our lives. Your God is the God who helps those who help themselves. But it's not Hannah's God. And as we'll see, it's not the God of the Bible. So that's my first question. 
Can you believe in such a God? And my second question is, can you value what God values? It may be that you can't believe that God notices and values the small things in life because you're not actually interested in them yourself. Your desire is for a bigger, better life of significance and purpose where people take you seriously and give you the kind of respect that you deserve. You're after a life that's always moving forwards towards the next goal or achievement, never satisfied with where you are now, but always looking to the far horizon for new opportunities and excitement. You're not interested in a God of small things. When it comes down to it, you're sick of the administrivia of daily life and the petty squabbling of Hannah's families and your own, so you can't believe that God would value such things because you've long since ceased to value them yourself. Can you value what God values? If we're truthful with ourselves, I expect that the answer to both these questions is frequently no. That is, due to my life experience, I cannot believe that God even notices what I'm going through. And I've never had the impression that he values me very much at all. Is that how you pray? Alternatively, you may be thinking you can't believe that God notices the small things. You can believe that, sorry, you can believe that God notices the small things, but that's just not good enough. I want more out of this life. I'm not interested in a servile life succumbing to every office bully or family bigot. I want a life of significance. I want recognition for my efforts. I want the peace and prosperity that others have so effortlessly. I want a God who delivers the things that I consider valuable not one who woos me into accepting mediocrity with some other otherworldly promises and pious words. I want a piece of the action. I want a seat at the high table. I want a place in the inner ring. I want people to notice me and acknowledge me, to wait on my decision and hang on my words. Why can't God give me those things? Hannah's prayer is to a God who values the small things. And Hannah's prayer is to a God who works in the small things. Now, in the immediate context, Hannah's prayer at the beginning of the Samuel story is actually an example of how God works for his people, for the people of Israel. Hannah's prayer is a pattern of the story of Israel. At this point in time in the life of Israel, they're in the period uh, that's referred to as the judges. And when Hannah cries out to the Lord in 1 1 Samuel chapter 1, her actions are a reflection of Israel during that time. For example, let me read to you from Judges chapter 3 verse 9. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. When the humble... And the frail cry out to the Lord, he raises them up and saves them. That's Hannah's prayer. You exalt the poor, raise up the lowly, and save them from their enemies. When Israel came to the promised land, they failed to remove all the nations who had lived there, and so various Israelite tribes from time to time fell under bondage to the superior nations around them. 
Yet whenever they cried out to the Lord for help, he noticed this small people because he valued them as his people and he did extraordinary things for them by raising up one of their own to deliver them. So in Judges chapter 3, verse 9, Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Kushan Rishnathayim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. This rotty little band of Israelites with a judge who was probably of some kind of questionable personal hygiene or moral standards defeated the king of Mesopotamia because the Lord listens to the lowly and raises them up. This pattern of raising up the lowly, and some of the judges were far from impressive, this pattern of reversal that we see in Hannah's prayer is actually the story of Israel's life with God. In this way, it's easy to see that Hannah's God is exactly as she expects him to be. He will respond to her prayer because he always notices and values the small things, even looking to bring them with their frailty and their brokenness, their disappointments and failures. The Lord is for them. And Hannah's prayer is also a promise for the future. God's attention to Hannah's prayer will bring about a dramatic change for Israel with the last of the judges, Samuel, Hannah's son. Samuel will be the first in a long time to be able to hear the voice of the Lord. That is, God will start speaking to his people again after a long absence with the coming of Samuel. And through Samuel, Israel will have their own king. And we see it there in Hannah's prayer. Chapter 2, verse 10 Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah sees a time when God's people will have their own king and this little group will actually become a major political power such that in 2 Samuel verse 7 we read... King David settled in his place and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Hannah's song is a prophecy of what God will do for those small things. But even more than that, Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song, gives us hope. Us hope. Because Hannah's prayer reflects the call of the gospel to trust in and pray to the God who was doggedly and unyieldingly committed to the small things. The pattern of Hannah's prayer is not just for Israel, it's for the whole world. Centuries later, another young woman would cry out in praise to the God who notices and values small things because God in his amazing grace has chosen to work in the small things. If you turn in your Bibles now to Luke chapter 1, our second reading, you'll see Mary, the mother of Jesus, praying a prayer which is almost the same as Hannah's. The Lord raises up and he brings down. The Lord lifts up the humble. The Lord lifts up his faithful ones. Mary prays in Luke chapter 1 verse 46, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. 
The God to whom Hannah prayed valued the small things so highly that he chose to become one of them through the womb of a Palestinian peasant girl. God has not forgotten his promises that he made to Israel and Hannah, nor had he changed his ways. So through the humble maiden and her small waiting community, the saviour for the whole world is born. Or as Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How do you know that God cares about the small things like us? He became one of us. Lived with the same kind of mean-spirited smallness of a squabbling family. This mother would call him insane. His brothers paid out on him and rejected him. God's not above the small things. He's one of them. When Jesus comes into the world, since we can't or won't believe in a God who notices and values the small things of life, he takes on our smallness, our spiritual barrenness, and does something truly extraordinary. The God of all the universe becomes a humble servant for us, trusting for us, suffering for us. In Jesus of Nazareth, God himself becomes the humble one who's lifted up far above every aspiration we could ever prove, we could ever have once and for all to prove the value of our small lives. Can you believe that? God values your life so much that he lived and died for it himself. Now it's quite bizarre. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are are, so that no one may boast before him. In the Lord Jesus, we have the promise that our smallest, most frail and vulnerable prayers are the ones to which God attends the most keenly. Because while we were doubting God or looking for a larger life, Jesus prayed for us, accepting our frailty, our vulnerability, our mistrust, our administrivia, and acted as our saviour. As we read in the book of Hebrews, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he'd offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. For all of us, with our little miserable prayers. Jesus takes those and transforms them with the power of his humble life. 
If you haven't as yet made your New Year's resolution, then please make one of them to trust in and pray to the God of small things. Now I want to finish this morning by going back to that prayer that you tested out earlier. And I want you to pray it now to Jesus. And he can take it and transform it in the power of his life and present it towards God, holy and blameless, without sin. So let's pray and then I'll close. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do listen to even our smallest prayers, our moments of frailty and vulnerability. When we're powerless, Lord, you hear us. Thank you, Lord Jesus that you take all of our prayers and transform them through the power of your life and present them towards God our Father as offerings and fragrant offerings. Thank you, Father, that you value us, that you see us, and that you work through even us. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.